0: Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here on Sunday morning at Calvary, and we are currently in a section that we've entitled, Jesus Prepares for Ministry. And it really revolves around three key events. The baptism in the Jordan, the temptation in the wilderness, and the announcement in Nazareth. Now, We've already looked at Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River, and now we want to turn our attention to the second key event in Jesus' preparation to begin His public ministry, and that is the temptation in the wilderness. Let me just start off by reading verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, then Jesus being filled with the Spirit returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. As we have already pointed out, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the waters of the Jordan, he was then baptized by God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. This happened when he came up out of the waters, and remember how the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. And we pointed out that that expression, the Spirit coming upon somebody is always consistent through the New Testament with a a Christian who is now being empowered with the power of the Spirit to do the work God is calling him or her to do. You can be a Christian and not have this power upon you. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit in you. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. That's a given. We've already talked about that. Not all Christians, though, have the Holy Spirit upon them. In other words, they're ready now to begin their service for the Lord. You say, well, why doesn't God give that power to everybody? Well, there are some Christians, as we've already pointed out, that I don't think really want to go any farther than just salvation. I mean, you know, you hear them, I'm saved, that's all I really care about. Yeah, but don't you want to serve the Lord? Eh, You know what? I'm saved. I love the Lord. But no, I really don't have a desire to go over here and do these things. You know, why would God waste his power on somebody who really doesn't want to be used by him? So here, the fact that Jesus walked 60 miles from Nazareth down to the lower Jordan River to be baptized by John signifies this event was critical. It was absolutely foundational for him beginning his public ministry. This was the power he needed in his humanity to do the work that the Father was giving him to do. And as we pointed out last time, Jesus conducted his earthly ministry not in his power as the second person of the Trinity, but in the power of the third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus being God, of course, had innate power. He could have done miracles. He could have done all the work that the Father wanted him to do through his own power. If he would have done that, he would have blown his humanity, though. See, he's our example. And how is he going to be an example to us in ministry if he availed himself to power that we don't have access to? That's why he only did what he did in ministry through the power of the Spirit, the same power that is available to us as believers. And if Jesus needed to wait until he was endued with power, until the Spirit came upon him, to begin his public ministry, then I would dare say we better not try to do the work of God in our own strength. We need this power as well. But here's the thing I want you to see also. It wasn't until Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit that the devil began to attack him. We're going to see that more in just a moment. Look, the more serious you get about God and about serving the Lord, the more serious the devil's going to get about you. All right, Christians that say, I don't know what you guys are talking about, I'm never oppressed. I don't feel like the devil ever attacks me. Uh, that's a problem. Because if you're a threat to the devil's kingdom, if you're living for the Lord and walking in the Spirit, you're a threat to the devil's territory, he's going to attack you. If you're no threat to him, if you're living a carnal life and, and all of that, well, no, he's you're no threat. You're, he's lost you, you're saved, but you're no threat to his kingdom. You're not really serious about taking territory away from him and the territory we're talking about are souls, right? So... When we get serious about God, the devil gets serious about us. Now, don't be afraid of that because the Bible says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Father, are all in us. So we are not afraid of the devil. You know, the prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not at him, right? One word will fell him. Martin Luther's famous hymn, right? But the idea is we have to be prepared. If you're going to get serious about God and be used by God to really serve him and and help others come to know, guess what? The devil is going to come attacking you, and he's going to attack you with some pretty severe, pretty powerful temptations. We're going to see those uh, more in just a moment. So the question that most Christians have when they read this section, though, that we're going to get into here in chapter 4. When they read of how that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and there he was tempted by the devil, the question that comes to their mind is, why? What purpose did this serve? I mean, what was, why was this necessary? Well, I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll show you why. Hebrews chapter 4. And while you turn there, let me just say this. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And this time of temptation and testing... Was very important so that Jesus could relate to and sympathize with our weaknesses. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4, starting in verse 14. He said, Seeing that we then have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith, is what he's saying. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ was tempted in every point as we are, but he never sinned. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in time of need. So, the question as to why Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil isn't all that difficult to understand. He was subjected to this temptation so that in part, he would learn as a man. Remember what the Bible says? He took the form of a man, and he learned obedience. He also learned to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was subjected to the same temptations that we ourselves are subjected to. People say, well, how can Jesus really understand what I go through? He's God. Yes, he is God, but he was also, he's also a man. And as a man, he experienced everything that we go through. Yet he never sinned. But that has allowed him now to sympathize with us. So it's not hard to understand why the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But I do think the whole situation presents a much bigger problem and begs a much tougher question. And that is this. Could Jesus have fallen for the devil's temptation in the wilderness and have sinned? This has been debated by Christian theologians for 2,000 years and gives rise to two camps on the issue. Those belonging to the first camp contend that based on the immutable statement of James in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 13, where James said, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. They say Jesus could not have sinned in the face of these temptations because they had no power over him. Well, those belonging to the second camp say, well, wait a minute. Yes, Jesus was God, and God cannot be tempted, but Jesus was also a man. And when he left his throne in heaven and became one of us, he took on the limitations of a man. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired. God doesn't get hungry, thirsty, or tired. So no, God can't be tempted, but Jesus as a man could have been tempted. Otherwise, this whole thing in the wilderness, this whole temptation would have been meaningless. It would have been a farce. If it had no effect on Jesus, if he was invincible and impervious to these temptations, it wouldn't have been real. That wouldn't have been a real temptation that he experienced then. So who's right? Which camp is right? Well, I think in a way both are right. You see, his divine nature could not be tempted. But again, Philippians 2 says that when he came to earth, he emptied himself and became susceptible to human frailties like you and me. Therefore, I believe that Jesus could sin because of his humanity, but because of his deity, there was no way that he would sin. This means that the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was absolutely legitimate. So the writer to the Hebrews could say with all certainty and in all truth that Jesus can now sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted. Listen, in all the ways the devil tempts us. Hold on to that because we'll get back to that in a moment yet yeah, Jesus never sinned. He experienced all the temptations that we experience, yet he never sinned. Well, that's the purpose of the temptation, basically that he might be able to sympathize and relate to us in our weaknesses. How about the preparation for the temptation? Well, that's in verse 2. It says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, the fact that Jesus, listen, think about this. The fact that Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and preparing before the devil was allowed to hit him with these three very powerful temptations he would eventually be subjected to, well, that says to me that these temptations were absolutely legitimate, that they had real teeth to them, you might say. They weren't just going through the motion because they had no effect on Jesus at all. He was invincible to these temptations. No, I think that they were legitimate, uh, I, I think that the fact that he purposely fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights before the devil was allowed to tempt him says to me that he needed to prepare for what was coming. That this was going to be a very powerful temptation and Jesus needed to prepare himself because in his humanity it would have been possible for him to sin. Now the statement here. That after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. It's kind of interesting. It sounds like Jesus didn't get hungry until after he had passed the 40th day point of his fast. I have um, read things by people who have uh, gone on prolonged fasts, sometimes 40 days. And they have said that around the 10th to the 14th day of the fast, your appetite goes away. And it doesn't return until, as the physiologists tell us, you start to starve to death. So there is a real long period between the time that your appetite goes away and the the time when you actually now begin to starve to death that the hunger returns. When that happens and the hunger returns, they say you better break your fast because now you're entering into serious territory. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. I can't tell you. I have firsthand knowledge of that. I've never fasted that long before. But it does seem to fit the text here, right? After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. It says to us he was at his weakest point now. Isn't it interesting how the devil waits till our weakest point to attack us? And I do think the Father kept the devil away for these 40 days and nights. But the devil will wait till we are at our weakest point to really attack us. That's why it's so important, by the way, when you're going through a difficult time spiritually, and we go through those times periodically, and whatever the devil's thrown at us, the condemnation, whatever he's, you know, what does he try to do? He tries to get you to, to isolate yourself from the body of Christ, doesn't he? You're going through a tough time. You're kind of feeling sorry for yourself. We've all been there. You know, woe is me. You know, it's the Elijah complex. I'm the only one who really loves you, Lord, everyone else, you know. And, uh, you know, and you don't even care about me. And I'm, you know, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, and, and, and the devil says to us at those times, you know what? Forget church. Forget Christians. Forget God. Just stay away. Well, if you listen to that, you put yourself in a real place where the devil can work you over. That's why it's so important when you're at your weakest, you come to church and surround yourself with fellow believers so that together we can pray for one another, bear each other's burdens, and really draw strength from one another, right? Now, the bulk of this passage is dealing with the third point I want to bring out. We looked at really the purpose of the temptation, the preparation for the temptation. Now we want to look at the presentation of the temptation. Verse 3 just simply begins by saying, now when the tempter came to him, when the devil came to Jesus. And I want to look carefully at these three temptations that Satan leveled at Jesus. And remember what the writer to the Hebrews says, that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way we are, yet he never sinned. That's why he can sympathize with us. I see in these three temptations that the devil used against Jesus, I see that these are the same three basic temptations that he uses against all of us, really, all of us. I mean, if you've got something that works, you stick with it, right? But these three basic temptations, I think, revolve around exactly what John talked about in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 16, when John said, for everything that is in the world, who's in control of the world, the world system? The devil, right? And we'll talk about that more in a moment. The devil is in control of this world system and has orchestrated everything to appeal to three areas of temptation." John says, everything that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are not of the Father, but are in and of the world system that Satan controls. So keep that in mind as we go through these, okay? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Let's look at the first temptation in verse 3. Now, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. In these three temptations, three times, Satan said, if you are the Son of God. The Greek is not if, it is since. Since you're the Son of God. Satan is not challenging Jesus' divinity. What he's doing is, he is playing off of what the Father said in verse 17 of chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized by John, he came up out of the water. Remember, the Spirit of God came and descended upon him in the form of a dove. And what did the Father say from heaven? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Satan picked up on that and said, oh, well, since you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. If you go into the wilderness of Judea, you will find millions of round limestone rocks that look like little loaves of bread. And I would imagine if you've been fasting for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days, uh, those little rocks start looking very much like bread. And you know what you're You're starting to say to yourself, man, I wish it was bread. Everywhere I look, I see loaves of bread, you know, but I know it's not real. I think Satan was capitalizing on that and said, look, if you're the son of God, right? You know, you've got power. Go ahead and command these stones to become bread. What is the devil doing here? Well, I think in a roundabout way, he is, first of all, questioning the father's provision. See, again, the Father said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And yet, wasn't it God the Father who sent the Holy Spirit to lead Jesus Christ into the wilderness and told Him to fast for 40 days and 40 nights? Jesus found Himself in a situation, and I don't know if the Father revealed to the Son how long He was going to fast. Can you imagine that? Every day, fasting, not knowing if... The fast was going to be over today or tomorrow. But day after day, 40 days is a long time, folks. To find yourself in a situation where you're not sure what the Father wants. You're just going day by day, and he's just told you don't eat until I tell you so. I mean, think about it. If we found ourselves in a situation where day after day, we were waiting for the Father to provide something. Uh, We were praying fervently. And day after day, nothing was happening. I wonder if Jesus began to think this. we, We focus so much on his divinity, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that he was a man too. And as a man, the Bible says he had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Wow. Does that mean that along the way here, he began to question the Father's love for him? How long is this going to go on? Why am I in this situation? If you really love me, why haven't you provided something for me to eat? You know, we often find ourselves in similar situations where we're going through a prolonged period where we don't know what the Lord's doing. We keep crying out to him. Maybe you're out of work. You've been crying out to him for a job and nothing is happening. I mean, things are getting really, really tight. You are beginning to question, is is God listening? Does God even love me? Has God abandoned me? If God really loved me, why would I be in this position for so long? And what does the devil come along and say? you're, You're supposed to be a child of God. Why isn't He helping you? You know what you need to do? Take things into your own hands. Take things into your hands. You know what? Forget about God. What's He done? He's done nothing. You go ahead and take things into your Use your own power to work things out. Don't wait on God. God's abandoned you. You just go ahead and work this out the best way you know how, no matter how you do it. And I'll tell you from experience, when I've done that, it's always been a mess. What is God doing? Well, first of all, he's trying to teach us patience. Yeah, but it's been a long time. Well, sometimes the lessons he's trying to teach us take a long time. He's trying to teach us patience. He's testing our faith. Are we going to trust that his word is true? He's testing our obedience. Are we going to take things into our own hands and do things that are not consistent with his character? Are we going to persevere? That's a big one. That's a big one. Perseverance is a Greek word that literally means to hang in there under pressure. To hang in there under pressure. A lot of times we hang in for a while, but you know what? As the situation kind of drags on, we're prone to bail and do whatever we have to do or we feel we need to do to work things out on our own. Now, you can fill in the blanks, right? There's a lot of ways we can apply this into our own lives personally. But the thing that we want to see here is that the devil will always try to come in. When God's trying to teach you perseverance and patience and faith and obedience, the devil at one point will come in and try to whisper in your ear, hey, look, if, God, if you really were a child of God, maybe you're not even saved. See, isn't that a big one today? Because if you were really saved, the Father would be providing. Now, I don't think he tried to do that with Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. But we doubt, don't we, sometimes. Hey, am I really a child of God? If I was, would I be in this situation for so long? Or if we don't question our salvation, we begin to question His character and His love. God, I'm your child. Why am I going through this for so long? I've cried out to you. I have confessed whatever sins I thought I might be involved in, and I still, day after day, you don't answer me. Do you even care about me? Well, look at Jesus' response to this temptation. He said in verse 4, Jesus answered the devil and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now here Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And the lesson I think that he is trying to teach us, the lesson he lived by obviously himself, but the lesson he's trying to pass on to us through the scriptures, is that the feeding of our spiritual man has to take precedence and priority over the feeding of our physical man. This is something so basic, and yet we so often stumble at this point. Our physical man screams really loud when we don't feed him, right? When you don't feed your physical man, your body lets you know pretty quick, doesn't it? It's okay, of course, to take care of our physical man. If we don't, the body lets us know about it. It's very important that we take care of our spiritual man. And when we don't, it's more subtle, isn't it? The spiritual man does not cry out like the physical man demanding to be taken care of. But you begin to see little things begin to happen. The way you think about things, your attitude, your temper coming back maybe. Uh, You're drawn to past sins that you have victory over. Uh, It's very important that we do as Jesus said and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Live at the level of the spirit, not the level of the physical. Because Jesus said, Live at the level of the Spirit, and God will take care of all your physical needs. Don't put the physical man above the spiritual man. We don't live by bread alone. We really live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's very important. Yet we blow it so often, don't we? The second temptation we see in verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, it's interesting. Here Satan quotes Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Look, the devil knows the word. The devil will quote Scripture. He'll do it to use against us. How? He twists it, he misquotes it, he quotes half of it. Uh, you know, a half-truth is a lie, right? He misinterprets it. He will do that to use God's very word against us, those who love the word. Satan is saying to Jesus, Well, look, if man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, prove it. Jump off this temple now, because it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you, right? It's in the word, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Interesting. In this temptation, Satan is trying to get Jesus to act in a way that puts the faithfulness of God the Father to a foolish test. How did Jesus respond? Well, in verse 7, he said, It is written again, You shall not tempt, or the Greek word is test, the Lord your God. Quoting from Deuteronomy 16, verse 6. Look, it is wrong for me to deliberately put myself in a dangerous situation just to test my faith or to test the faithfulness of God. You know, I think of those folks down in the south, in the Ozarks, I'm thinking primarily, I'm sure there are uh, other places that do this too, where the, some of the Christians down there, they practice snake handling in their services and prayer meetings because they're trying to prove that they're great men and women of faith based on what Jesus said at the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses, I think, 17 and 18, where Jesus said, These signs shall follow those who believe in me, my disciples. They will cast out demons, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover, they will speak in other tongues, they will handle serpents. If they drink poison, it won't hurt them. So in these services, they will go ahead and try to show what great faith they have by taking up serpents, you know, snake handling and drinking poisonous things. Unfortunately, a big number of these folks die every year doing these kinds of stunts. Yes, but the word of God says it, right? Aren't they acting according to the word? They are acting according to what they think the word is saying. The devil has twisted it to make them apply it in a way it's not true. Here's the context. I believe what Jesus is saying. When you go out into all the world and preach the good news, right? And you go out into areas where it's dangerous. I think of missionaries in Africa or other places like that. When Paul was on the island of Malta at one point, uh, serving the Lord, at one point a snake fastened itself to his arm, bit him, and so on. And he shook it off into the fire. And the natives were looking to wait to see how long it was going to take before he swelled up and died. And he didn't die. And so they began to worship him as a god. When you're on the mission field serving the Lord. And in the course of serving God. You drink something that maybe is poisonous. But you don't know it. You're just trying to survive. Or a serpent bites you. And you're miles from the nearest clinic or doctor. You know what you do? You claim Mark 16 verses 17 and 18. And trust the Lord. He's going to protect you, and I believe he will. But it doesn't mean that we engage in one of these stunts, and that's what it is. At the heart of these kind of stunts in the church today is pride, the very thing that Satan was trying to bring out of Jesus through this temptation. You see, the pinnacle of the temple was the highest point on the very top of the temple. It was about 400 feet from the pinnacle of the temple to the Kidron Valley. The temptation was for Jesus to demonstrate that he was really the Messiah by jumping off and thereby forcing the Father to send angels to rescue him, right? To catch him in midair and to gently bring him down onto the temple mount where hundreds if not thousands of Jews were always gathered that they might all see this big spectacle. What a show, right? What a demonstration. Wow. Nobody will be able to doubt your Messiah. If people see you jump off the temple and all of a sudden angels come and Gently carry you down and set you on your feet there on the Temple Mount. Wow, is that going to be a spectacle, right? Spectacular show for everybody. Prove your Messiah. Look, that would have been totally outside the will of God. God doesn't want us involved in cheap theatrics and stunts like that to try to force God to work a miracle on our behalf because most of the time it's just pride fueling that whole deal, anyways. We want to show people how spiritual we are. Look, we can play with snakes and not get harmed. We're really people of faith until they get bit and die. You know, these kind of foolish stunts are very popular in certain church circles. You see this quite a bit in the Word of Faith movement, where a lot of these Word of Faith preachers encourage their congregations to go ahead and buy expensive cars and houses and then trust God to provide the monthly payments. You know what, folks? To me, that's nothing more than encouraging people to take a financial suicide jump that puts God to a foolish test and expecting him then to rescue them, and in the process, showing everybody how spiritual they are. We need to be careful that we don't ever try to, um, again, put God to a foolish test, you know. I told you about a pastor I was, uh, one of our conferences was saying when he was first saved, uh, you know, he didn't know much, you know, and he wanted to kind of walk by faith and kind of, you know, and so he decided, <laughs> true story, he said, I can't believe I did this. He's a young guy, though, you know, a hippie in those days, and just got saved. And so he's driving down the freeway out in California, right? And he thought, well, I'm going to just, I want to be a man of faith. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to close my eyes, take my hands off the wheel, and just trust God to guide the car. So he did. And immediately the Lord spoke to him and said, don't put God to a foolish test. And of course he came to his senses and, you know, but you know, sometimes we're prone to do dumb things that we think are going to showcase how much faith we have. Use common sense. And if God asks you in the course of using common sense and being responsible and doing things that are logical, if God tells you to step off the common sense path and do something a little crazy for a purpose, then go ahead, but make sure God's in it, all right? Make sure you're not just putting God to a foolish test. Well, the third temptation we see in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. A couple of things. First of all, Satan said, All these kingdoms of the earth belong to me. Was that true? Yeah, it was definitely true. Because in the Garden of Eden, God gave the world over to Adam and Eve, mankind, and man was in control and had dominion over the earth. When they sinned against God, they gave control of the earth over into the hands of Satan, who the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, is now the God of this age. He's the God of this present world system. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that the whole world lies under the control of the devil. So at that point, Satan became the world's new owner and man's new master, he introduced into the world the disease and the, the injustice and, and, and encouraging sin and violence and so on. This is not the world God originally in, uh, intended for us to live in. This is a world controlled by the devil, a fallen world. And so Jesus Christ entered the world to redeem mankind and to, by his blood, to take the world back from the control of Satan. That's why he came. And the Bible says when he comes back the second time, he will then take control of this world which he has bought and paid for. Right now he is gathering a people who want to be a part of that new kingdom that's coming. He wants people in the kingdom, his kingdom voluntarily. He wants those who are, will willingly worship him as king and bow the knee to his authority. It starts right now in this life, right? If a person bows the knee to Jesus and receives him as Lord and Savior, they become a part of the kingdom which is coming. It first of all comes inside of our hearts we become members of the kingdom. We'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 5. But eventually Jesus Christ, when he comes back, is going to take possession of the world and reign from Jerusalem visibly over the face of the whole earth. Revelation 11 verse 15 says, At one point all of heaven burst forth with a, with a resounding praise and hallelujah. That says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's coming. It's not here yet. And Satan knew what was happening. Satan knew that Jesus had come to take possession of the world back from him by going to the cross. So what is Satan doing? Satan is basically encouraging Jesus Christ to sidestep the cross. To take a shortcut around the cross. He is basically saying, look, I know why you've come. I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You've come to take the world back from me that you would ultimately someday rule over it and over all its kingdoms. You're going to reign over the earth someday? I'll give it to you right now. The earth is mine. I will give you control. I'll let you reign over the kingdoms of this world if you will bow down and worship me. Don't go to the cross. You can have all that you're going to get from going to the cross right now without the pain, without the suffering. What did Jesus say? Aren't we glad he didn't say, hey, that sounds like a pretty good deal? He said, verse 10, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Quoting Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. Look, the application to the people of this world is clear. And I'm talking about the people of this world in general. The people of this world have two choices, and only two choices ultimately. They can either receive Christ as Lord and Savior take up their cross, which, as Jesus said, is absolutely essential if you're going to be a true disciple, right? You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Either they do that, bow them the knee to Christ right now, surrender their life to Him, take up their cross, and follow Jesus, or they can bypass the cross and opt for immediate gratification right now here in the earth. We know someday our suffering is going to be over with. Our trials, all the persecution, all the hardship is going to be over with. When he comes, we're going to enter into his kingdom, a kingdom of glory which will never end. That's in the future. Satan always tries to get people to opt, though, for immediate gratification. Don't go to the cross. Those Christians are goofy anyways. Don't listen to them. You don't need a cross. You can have it right now. I'll give you fame, fortune, pleasure, material things right now if you'll just worship me. Even though they don't realize many people that they're actually worshiping the devil when they reject the Lord. That's what they're doing. And there are many in the church, and I'm talking about the church in general, not the real church. You have the visible church made up of many apostates and unbelievers. Then you have the invisible church, the true body of Christ, made up of true believers. And there are many in the visible church today, because we're in the last days, telling people, you don't have to go to the cross. In fact, a lot of churches don't even preach the cross anymore, because it's barbaric, it's unpleasant. People don't want to hear about that dying to solve all that cross stuff. They want to hear how they can be prosperous how they can know perfect health all the time, how they can have material things, how their businesses can prosper. This is what people want to hear. And that's the very thing Paul the Apostle said would happen in the last days. People would turn in the church now, would turn away from good, solid biblical teaching and would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. What would, and what would that be? Well, Paul tells Timothy. He said they will preach a gospel that says godliness is a way to get rich. And Paul says, Timothy, you turn away from people like that because godliness with contentment is already great riches. We've been given all things in Christ and though I may suffer with poverty on the earth, as long as I know Jesus, I am very rich. And I'm not going to lay up for myself treasures on the earth. I'm going to lay up for myself treasures in heaven. That's what I'm waiting for. That's where my focus is. But let me just say this to you. We have many in the formal organized church today basically preaching a crossless Christianity but folks let me tell you this a crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity and a Christless Christianity won't save anybody I don't care how hard you believe in what you believe in Warren Worsby author and pastor said and I quote the devil offered Jesus a shortcut to his kingdom Jesus knew that he would suffer and die before he entered into his glory. If he bowed down and worshipped Satan just once, because that's what the Greek construction means. When Satan said, I'll give all this to you if you bow down and worship me, the Greek is, just one time. Just one time you'll bow down and worship me. If he bowed down and worshipped Satan just once, he could enjoy all the glory without enduring the suffering. Because on to say, there are no shortcuts to the will of God. If we want to share in the glory, we must also share in the suffering, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Look at Club Med Christianity doesn't save anybody. I'm convinced of that. I'm telling you. If there's not a cross in it, if there's not any denial, if there's not any understanding that he's the master, I'm the slave, I don't own myself anymore, I've been bought with a price. I now belong to Him, and I'm to live for His glory with my body and in my spirit, which He has redeemed and He owns. If there isn't that reality in a person's mind, if it's all about what God's going to give to me, and that's why I've become a Christian, I'm not sure you have become a Christian. Because the devil will try to get, even those of us who are really Christians, he will try to get us to opt out of the cross, bypass it, and try to do whatever we can to enjoy things and, and have all of our pleasures and things right now. And I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you can't have any enjoyment now. You can't own anything. You can't have any pleasure and so on and so forth. I'm just saying, though, that can't be the driving force in your life. It's got to be the glory of God. Now, we're done. Verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I would imagine they brought him something to eat, some killer takeout from somewhere. (laughs) Uh, You know, um, ministered strength to him, you know, like they brought Elijah the angel food cake, remember, and he ate and was, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, That angel food cake is pretty strong stuff in heaven. I mean, Elijah was really, you know, he ate a little bit of that. He was ready to go 40 days uh, in the strength of that. But look, the devil left him. Now, that doesn't mean the devil left him once and for all. The other Gospels tell us he left him for a time, waiting for another opportunity to attack him. That might have been the next day, I don't know. But I'm so thankful that God only lets the devil get at us at times, okay, in waves. And then only in a very controlled manner. Because God is in control of the devil. And only lets the devil get at us here and there. Why? Because he's trying to toughen us up, teach us faith teaches obedience perseverance right i mean you know we have to go through trials if we're going to grow i'm just so thankful the lord doesn't let satan come at us in a constant steady stream we wouldn't be able to handle it he lets him attack a little bit and then he says, that's enough pulls him off of us Then, as peter said he settles us strengthens us encourages us and so on three powerful attacks based on three powerful temptations How did Jesus respond to each of these attacks? What did he do? Did he say, I rebuke you, Satan, in my name? Uh, I rebuke you or I plead my blood. We've talked about this. How many little Christian catchphrases are being thrown around today? What did Jesus say? Three times the devil attacked him, tempted him. Three times Jesus responded by saying, it is written. It is written. Now, some Christians have the mistaken idea that all we have to do is quote Bible verses and the devil has to run screaming into the night. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like holding garlic up in front of a vampire. You know, they have, he has, he's he got to go running screaming into the night. Well, what is, what do we learn from this passage? Oh, you want to quote scripture? Well, here, the devil can quote scripture. The devil will quote scripture. He knows the Bible. His demons know the Bible. And all the people that work for him, whether they know it or not, know the Bible. The atheists and agnostics. He will use God's word against us. There's a whole atheist movement that's gaining traction nowadays, right? And I've seen these atheists take the word of God and use it against Christians to confuse them and to try to destroy their faith. This is what the devil does. How can we stop the devil? From doing this? Well, we stop him by knowing the word well enough ourselves to counter Satan's temptations and condemnations that he will use the the word against us. Let me show you how that works. What about when the devil attacks you with condemnation? By whispering in your ear and saying, Look, you know what? God has really had it with you. You know, you keep messing up, you keep blowing it, especially in this one area here you keep coming and asking for forgiveness and you keep messing up again, you know what? God's through with you. All right? He's done. He has turned His back on you. He has has forsaken you. You know what? You might as well not even bother going to church anymore, reading the Bible or praying because you know what? He's through with you. That's pretty heavy condemnation. But what does Romans 8 verse 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who belong to Jesus Christ. Devil, I am weak. I do blow it. But you know what? My God has said, because I am in Christ, I will never be condemned ever again. Oh, yeah, but he's forsaken you. Well, Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See how you counter the devil when he... But you have to know the word, right? When he attacks at one area of your life, you've got to be able to counter with the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean we justify our sins. It doesn't mean we take them lightly. It just means that we understand we're sinners and God knew we were sinners and he knew every sin we were going to commit before he ever saved us. So when we do sin, we're not surprising him as the devil would kind of cause us to think, oh, I've let God down. You haven't let God down. You haven't disappointed God. To disappoint somebody means they appointed you up here and you didn't live up to what their expectations so you disappointed them. Hey, God knows us, right? He knew every sin we were going to commit before we ever got saved. So when I sin, I can grieve him but I can't disappoint him. And he has told me that all of our sins, told all of us, all of our sins are under the blood of Christ. He has taken them all out of the way. He nailed them to his cross. Well, how about when you go through difficult circumstances as a child of God? These are tough times. A lot of people are out of work. Some people have been out of work for a long time. They have cried out to God and no job has come yet. Things are getting pretty tight. The devil begins to attack and says, look, if God really loved you, would you be in this position? God hasn't provided yet. What makes you think he ever will? Well, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, look, talking to his people, don't worry. What are going to eat? What you are going to wear? Unbelievers have to worry about these things because they have no heavenly father. He said, but you do this. You seek first God's kingdom. You put God's work and his glory above everything else. You live at the level of the spirit, and God will make sure all your physical needs are taken care of. That's a promise. Yes, but things are getting pretty tight. Well, sometimes they will. Are you going to hang in there and trust? Or are you going to bail and run or take things into your own hands? It's a test. And again, remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. All your needs. And I love what Peter said. We are to come to Him and cast all of our cares upon Him. The word is anxieties. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He truly does care for you. See, these are all things that we need to take to heart. The devil is going to come at us, and as we're getting closer to the return of Christ, I don't know about you, but haven't you felt the attacks ratcheting up? Haven't you felt the uh, oppression growing ever more intense? it takes many different forms, right? You find yourself depressed for no reason. You find yourself worried. You find yourself fretting. You find yourself doing, going through a lot of things that, you know, just what is this? Where did this come from? It's the devil. We need to understand that the devil is going to try to attack us in many different ways. The three main temptations, though, is first of all, the lust of the eyes. He wants us to live according to what we see and not based on what we know from God's word. The lust of the flesh putting our physical needs above the spiritual needs. The pride of life trying to tell us, look, you can have the fame, the fortune, everything right now. Why would you want to wait for some day and go through all this suffering in the meantime? You can have it all right now. That's the message he has fed the world. You know, you can have it all right now. You don't have to be like one of these Christians. And... You know, get saved and who knows, lose your family, lose your job because now your boss doesn't want a Christian working for him or her, whatever it might be. Yeah, we go through trials. We go through persecution. We have to sometimes suffer for the cause of Christ. But is it worth Is it worth it for what's coming? The Bible says Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, looking forward to the what? The glory that would follow. That's the Christian life. We endure the cross now. We don't love the cross. We despise the cross, but we know it's necessary. We know the shame is necessary because it relate it identifies us with Christ. We're on the same team, and we know what's coming. There's a glorious kingdom coming, and we wait for that day. Let the world have its heyday now. Our day is coming, and our day will never end when it comes. He will reign forever, and we will reign with him. That's something to rejoice in, right? Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that yes, while as your children, the devil will come. He will attack. He will tempt. He will condemn. But Lord, give us grace each day to draw close to you, especially as we see the day approaching when your return is coming, Lord Jesus. Give us grace to keep drawing ever closer to you to stay in your word, Lord, and to know it well enough where if somebody misquotes it or twists it or misapplies it, we can say, no, 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 that's not what the word says. This is what the word says. And we can stand for truth and um, escape the condemnation of the devil. So, Lord, thank you so much. Your word is truth, it's light, it guides our way in this dark world. Give us grace to feed on it every day and to remember that if our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, left the glory that was his in heaven and became one of us and suffered and experienced temptations and and the shame that he experienced, Lord, what makes us think that we can bypass that? Give us grace, Lord, to follow in our Savior's footsteps. And we just praise you, Lord, and we just thank you for your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.